Tim Griffin with the American Voters Alliance, and uh, Jacqueline's not on today, but we're going to have John Hodgson on here in a few minutes. Uh, I wanted to talk uh, for a minute about what happened last week. A lot of people are asking what happened in the midterm elections last week, and it is a conversation worth having. Um, I, I've been looking at some of the data uh, from the election, and I think there are some, a few important points to make in regards to election integrity issues. Um, number one, um, if a state uh, sent out more than a million ballots uh, for you know, 10 million residents, um, then it was more likely to go blue than to go red. If a state allowed for same-day registration, um, then it was more likely to go blue than to go red. And, and finally, if they had a permanent absentee voter list, uh, it was more likely to go blue than go red. And you combine all those three things together, if they had all three, they almost certainly went blue, uh, whereas the states that didn't have that went red. And so I think we, there's the question is, what do we pull from this? Because the, the, the election is um, – it's unlike an election we've seen before. You know, I think traditionally the, when the president, especially an unpopular president who's you know, below water in approval ratings, I think President Biden was at 48 percent approval. Everyone anticipated that the Republicans would pick up about 30 House of Representatives seats and four, at least four U.S. Senate seats, and that's on average over the last 100 years. And in fact, it looks like they could lose a Senate seat, which is like the opposite of that. It's like what, what has happened in this election to make things go that way? And I'll add in there something else that I think is really important. Uh, the House of, in the House of Representative races, uh, people have gone through to see how many more votes – how many more votes Republicans got than Democrats? Republicans got six million more votes in this election than Democrats did. Uh, so across the country, six million more votes for Republicans than Democrats, and yet the Republicans hardly pick up any House of Representatives seats, and they pick up – they actually lose a U.S. Senate seat. What are we taking away? And I think it's too early to know exactly what happened on Tuesday. I know a lot of people are going to say, well – um, the Dobbs decision, there was politics involved that it upset people. President Trump upset people. And, and certainly, you know, political consultants can, can talk about that. But let's talk about election administration because what we're seeing is universal mail-in ballots in a lot of these states or if not universal, you know, uh, over a million ballots going on in those states. And I pulled up some of these numbers that I want to mention real quick. Um, in in uh, Michigan, um, there was 1.8 million ballots that went out, 1.8 million ballots that went out. In Pennsylvania, um, they sent out something like that and received back 1.2 million absentee ballots. Nevada had universal mail-in ballots. They sent out 1.8 million ballots. Arizona, um, what I read was 80% of the 2.7 uh, million uh, voters received mail-in ballots. So you're talking about 2.2, 2.3, 2.4 million absentee ballots in Arizona. And what do all those things have in common? They all went blue on election day. And so the question I think that people are going to have to you – know, smarter people than us are going to have to grapple with is what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, you know, blue voters are just more likely to, to come out and vote if they can vote by mail? Because certainly we don't ever want to uh, prevent anyone from legally voting if that's what they want to do. If they're alive and they're only taking one ballot and they're registered to vote and they're a citizen here, if that's what we want. We want them to vote. Um, but the concern is that when you send out like, – like take Nevada for instance. You send out 1.8 million absentee ballots for a small state like Nevada. I think Nevada only has four electoral votes. Um, you compare that to like Texas or California, which has 50 <laughs> electoral votes. I mean Nevada is, is one of the smaller states in the whole country, probably the smallest state out west. Almost all the people live in one or two different counties out there. 1.8 million ballots is a lot of ballots for a small state. I mean it's a lot of ballots for a big state. 
where are those ballots going to? Um, is there any reconciliation process? Is anybody accounting for those ballots later? These are the questions I think that we need to be asking because what a lot of people are concerned about is mass ballot harvesting. You know, are, are, are where who's who is getting these ballots and what's happening with these ballots? Are they reconciling where these ballots went to? I thought it was a really interesting story um, from the the one of the ladies on the View, uh, Sunny Hostin was heard on a hot, uh, hot mic and she was saying that, uh, you know, she helped turn in her son's absentee ballot and that could have been perfectly legal. Um, he, but he was in Massachusetts at the time and she was in New York at the time. And it, it caused people to ask the question, uh, <laughs> what exactly is going on here? Because, you know, if, if absentee ballots are just, if you're sending five absentee ballots to a household and four of the kids have moved away or three of the kids have moved away and they're off at college and they're not the ones opening the ballots, completing the ballots, sealing the ballots, Who's voting those ballots? You know, do you have a parent or do you have somebody else in the household or do you have a harvester coming by and picking up those ballots and voting for them? And this is the problem with absentee mail-in voting. Uh, and so there's just a lot of questions to be asked. Now, on the, on the flip side, states that didn't have same-day registration, states that don't have a permanent absentee voter list, and that, when I say permanent absentee voter list, what we're talking about is um, a list where you know, once you sign up, um, you're on there forever, and as opposed to saying every election, hey, I want to vote absentee this election. Send me, send me one of those ballots. Um, you know, Florida doesn't have those, those things. Georgia doesn't have those things. North Carolina doesn't have those things, and those states went red, right? And it's really, really interesting. Another thing I'll point out in, in Georgia and Florida, and we'll get into this with John Hodgson today um, because I think Kentucky is the same way and Virginia is the same way. Uh, you obviously we all prefer. I always say this because I don't want anyone to think I think anything otherwise. We always prefer if you vote in person on election day. But the reality of the world is not necessarily that. So with the reality of mass absentee ma mail-in ballots, something that we need to consider is that a good alternative to mass absentee ballots is allowing people to come in, vote in person with photo ID and take their ballot and put it into the tabulator and cutting out the middleman there. And that's something that they allowed in Georgia and they had allowed in Florida and we allowed in Virginia. And you've got huge numbers of early voting going on, but you cut out 90% of the fraud opportunities. You cut it out by doing that. You cut it out. So it's something that we need to think about. If we're going to have if we're going to have election season, we may not like it, but let's let's accept the reality of it and think in terms of how do we cut down on 90% of the fraud with absentee ballots. So I thought that was like a, a really interesting thing to think about. Um, we're going to have to struggle with these anomalies and these numbers. I think when we're talking about the U.S. Senate, um, there hasn't been a, a, a midterm election or any election in the U.S. Senate in 110 years since 1914, 108 years where an incumbent has has not lost a seat. Right this year, no incumbent has lost a seat unless Warnock loses in, in in the you know in the runoff in Georgia. No incumbent will have lost a seat in the U.S. Senate. What is going on? Something is different now. Something is different in our elections. People know that it stinks, uh, but we're just trying to figure out, wrap our head around what do all these numbers mean and how do we fix it, right? How do we fix it? Because we want to make sure that every legal voter is voting, but they're only voting one time. They're alive. They're a citizen. So with that, I want to talk to John Hodgson. He's somebody I admire a lot. He's somebody that started off as an activist. He was in the Bevin administration, the Matt Bevin, Governor Matt Bevin in Kentucky. And then he himself ran for office and just won, and he's going to the House of uh, Representatives in the state of Kentucky. And as you all know, uh, elections are decided at the state level. The Constitution says the federal elections specifically are uh, the, the time, place, and manner of those elections. That's the phrase used in the Constitution is decided by the state legislatures. And so this is something that John is going to have a first, uh, you know, a front row seat 
in determining election policy in his state. So I'm really excited to get into that. And uh, thanks for being on. Welcome to another episode of our American Voters Alliance podcast. Uh, Jacqueline is uh, not with us this week, getting ready for the runoff in Georgia. Um, but we do have a special friend on today, uh, John Hodgson, who is uh, a newly elected uh, representative elect out of the house in Kentucky, the state house in Kentucky. Uh, and John's agreed to join us today. So we want to talk about some election issues with John. Welcome, John. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for being on here, John. So John, I remember when I was in, I think I was in law school when, uh, there was this big race, a couple of races. I think the first race I remember in Kentucky was a U.S. Senate race. And it was this guy named Matt Bevan that ran in a primary and lost. And then I think he went, he ended up running again and he became governor in, in Kentucky, right? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, the Senate race kind of set him up with name identification. Then he won the primary by 83 votes statewide. Uh, for wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, we that talk, was, that was a crazy time. And, we uh, talk about this a lot because people, you know, people don't realize how close a lot of our elections actually are. Yeah, we had, uh, I think, one year five House members elect, elected by single-digit margins, elected or lost by single-digit margins. And, uh, you know, one vote, two votes, five votes, something like that. And uh, it gets pretty serious at that point. You find the most, um, the largest proponents for election integrity are the ones who just lost their election by two votes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember um, a couple years ago in Virginia, there was it was a 50, it was like 49 to 50 in the House of Delegates. And wow. uh, there was one race in the balance, and then that one race was a tie. So they had to do some; they had to get a fishbowl and pick a name out of there to determine who would be the winner that would that would determine that the, the control of the chamber. They're crazy. So, so John, so when I really became acquainted with you, you were a, before. I mean, you're you're about to go into the state house, but before that, you worked for Governor Matt Bevin, right? I did. I was the uh, operations director there in the governor's office, and got into. Everything having to do with people and processes and cutting red tape and, uh, you know, just problem-solving kind of role like I had done in my private sector career, kind of a uh, systemic problem solver. And, and boy, I learned a lot you know, from being inside the belly of the beast there in state government. So, so let, let's go back to when – I think Bevin, was he elected in around 2013? Is that right? Uh, 15. 15. 15. 2015, yeah. pretty popular governor for four years, and then he runs for re-election in 2019, Right. Right. So tell uh, us tell us about that election. What it was like in Kentucky? Well, he was he won by uh, almost ten points in twenty fifteen. Was a very popular governor for a couple of years, and then he started. He was kind of a pioneer in running afoul of the media and some special interest groups on social media, and just getting shellacked. And it, it uh, changed public opinion so dramatically, um, especially in the big uh, urban centers. He won, he won re-election by a landslide in the 110 rural counties, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 uh, percent of the vote. But then he got to Louisville and Lexington, where the uh, the large urban areas, and he uh, lost the county I live in, Jefferson County, about 100,000 votes. And he had only lost it by 40,000 four years before. So that crushed him. And the overall election statewide out of a couple million votes cast was uh, about a 5,000 vote margin. So very close, a third of a percent, um, and there was no automatic recount provision at that time. And uh, just not any kind of good ways to do it, <clears throat> any analysis of that election, see if it was on the up and up. I've always, we always used to joke that you have to win by more than the margin of cheating, you know, because someone's always going to try to cheat. And if you don't win convincingly by, you know, three, four, five percent, you may be too close. And uh, that very well, may very well have been the case in, uh, in 2019. Nonetheless, he 
Um, Andy Bashir was inaugurated, and you know he eventually conceded, and that was that. But it was uh, it ended up being a bit of a foreshadowing of um, you know the twenty twenty elections. Yeah, it's interesting, John, because let's assume for a moment that there was no fraud in in the Kentucky election that we just talked about. Um, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people had their uh, their faith in the election system shook because of what happened in Kentucky. So it's like it's kind of one of these things where when we when we don't have transparent elections, even if everything is on the up and up, the system is falling apart because the system only exists when people trust in it. And when people stop trusting in it, what good is it? Right. But what we found out is in the governor's race in Kentucky under our 1894 constitution, there was no uh, provision for a recount unless the candidate paid for it, which, would, which could have cost millions. Uh, it would go into some kind of an 11-member tribunal in the House, and they would just decide who the governor was. Last time they did that was 1900. And uh, so that was not a <laughs> not, not an acceptable process to follow, and there probably uh, would not have been 11 members of the House ready to jump into that dumpster fire. Right. So, uh, so uh, eventually he did uh, concede the election. But I think the, the biggest factor, based on the success he had, he should have won by 10 points, even 20 points. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of uh, leftist media pressure and social media pressure, he was enormously unpopular in the metro area. See, he was the first, I think, to see some of what we commonly see now, where you go to a public event, you get booed, people uh, you know, lean out the car window and yell obscenities. And that just wasn't done to public officials you know, 10 years ago you know, just in a, in a stadium. And now it's, it's commonplace, I think. But he was, uh, I guess, the un, un, unwitting pioneer of that and uh, just the hatred in the big metro areas and then just getting dumped on every day by the uh, major media, which were all left-leaning here. There was no right, right-wing media and uh, getting dumped on in social media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't have a good defense strategy or a way to fight back on that. You know, you just, you know, tweet, gosh, it sure is a pretty day in Kentucky and then get you know, a thousand answers. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's such a cultural difference right now in the country. I mean, you know, people talk about like civil war times. It was North versus South. And, and, and fortunately, and thankfully we're not, we're not there right now. I think we still care and love each other as Americans, but um, right now the cultural divide seems to be between the cities, the urban areas and the rest of America, which is like 95% of the space in America is red America. And then these right, cities right. are like the blue areas. Yes. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson was a bit of a prophet in the seven, late 1700s, and he said, if we become as crowded in our cities as the Europeans, we will become as corrupt as the Europeans. And uh, he advocated an agrarian model for America, spread coast to coast, have little townships of 36 square miles, local control of the election, everybody should be involved in something related to an agricultural pursuit. You know, every man have his own uh, fig tree, as they said in the Bible. And uh, that was contrasted by the, the mercantilists who wanted to uh, basically bring big finance in, Alexander Hamilton and those guys. So the two ways to make a living, one was to till the land yourself, the other one was to make money off of somebody else's money. And I think we see from the last 250 years who won out <laughs> in that battle, but still consistently, those who are raised and live in rural areas, they see God's creation around them, they see animals in the field, they're not confused about which animal's a boy, which animal's a girl. Um, you know, They see where food comes from, it doesn't come from Kroger. And uh, they tend to uh, vote for faith, family, and freedom because that, that's the world they live in. You know, those from big concrete cities where everything is controlled by, you know, big media and there's mm-hmm. crowds, so they tend to vote very blue. And I've traveled some and I get in some of those major cities and I say, yeah, I think I, I see why you vote the way you vote here. Yeah. And, uh, 
it, it was my whole life I felt like Hamilton was viewed as this monarchist. <clears throat> and then that Chernobyl biography came out, which they based a Broadway play off of called Hamilton. And he kind of revamps Hamilton, what Hamilton was about. And I think that Chernobyl book really is about Jefferson's vision for you know an agricultural society versus uh, Hamilton's vision for big banks running the country and a new right. financial system. And that's, that's really what right. it is, is a defense of Hamilton and the banks and the big cities. That's correct. So, but I, but I do find in my travels, uh, Kentucky's got 120 counties. I think 110 of them are profoundly rural, and they seem like they have their heads screwed on right. So, um, you know, yeah. So, what county? What What are you representing? So, you were just elected in your election. I'm just elected. I'm in the the biggest county. Uh, Jefferson County has a is a little more than uh, one sixth of the state population. Okay. Uh, it, it's the big city, Louisville. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Churchill Downs, Kentucky Derby, all that stuff is right here. So uh, it's really the economic engine for the state. There are another nine semi-urban counties that contribute to the uh, overall economic welfare of the state. But honestly, the 10 semi-urban counties produce so much commerce and pay so many taxes that they're financing life in the other 110 counties Yeah, that are rural and don't have a whole lot of industry. Uh, in fact, one of the things we talk about is in a lot of these small counties, the leading employer is government, uh, you know, through the school system and then city hall. <clears throat> but we've got entire counties that only have four or 5,000 people in them. And uh, so it makes an interesting dynamic in Frankfurt because I'll be uh, sitting down with 100 other legislators, and the vast majority of them are from rural areas and have a rural constituency, constituency which is why the Kentucky State House is now 81% Republican. Wow. So, you know, it's, <clears throat> you know, the... I think in the in the Senate it's down to down to seven Democrats mm-hmm. I think, <laughs> and there are no elected Democrats outside of blue urban areas. No, the whole whole map is just red. But it really uh, is. It really has become a party for the very poor and the very wealthy. Whereas the Republican Party seems to be the party of the working man these days. Yes, the party of the working man who loves America, yeah. and loves his family. Yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about election laws in Kentucky, sure. so people know the context okay. of what we're talking about. John, I think when people uh, think about election laws, they in this in the 2022 context, we're thinking about mail-in absentee ballots, drop boxes, Zucker funds, Zucker bucks, which is what we call those private funding of public elections right. from billionaires. You know, what does it, what does the scene look like in Kentucky with election laws right now? So in 2019. I found out more about election law than I ever wanted to know. <laughs> right. With a, with a uh, 5,000 vote margin and five weeks to contest it, I ended up getting help from six different states, election integrity people, uh, former governors, former attorney generals, came to our defense and said, don't concede, let's look into this. This is too weird. This shouldn't have happened. So we turned over a lot of rocks, and we found <clears throat> a lot of smoke. We never could find anything that was close enough to being legally admissible evidence to charge anyone, but even to investigate it, we couldn't even find a prosecutor willing to, willing to take the case, case on. Uh, so, <clears throat> for instance, we found uh, 20% of the state was voting on DRE machines, direct recording electronic, and had sworn affidavit testimony that people would turn the lever for straight ticket Republican. It would mark every candidate except Bevan. And uh, when we went to do a recount, they said, you can't recount. What you see is what you get. You know, the memories get erased. It's all done. Uh, we did open records requests in 120 counties for uh, voter rolls and uh, doing recounts and ended up getting stymied mm-hmm. uh, by that. Um, we had people being turned away on election day saying that they had already voted. And they said, I didn't vote. And lo and behold, someone had signed a name and their blank on the voter rolls. Right. 
uh, you know, that affidavits and those those things were later discovered to be some kind of a of an error, you know. But we've just found a lot of anomalies. So as a result of that, at the end of five weeks, the contest period was ended. Uh, Bevan did concede, but we didn't give up. We started Americans for Election Integrity in Kentucky here and worked diligently to get <clears throat> a whole raft of new election laws passed. So since 2019, first thing we had was a voter ID law. I've worked the polls for decades, and I've watched people walk up with no ID, and the poll worker just says, oh, yeah, I know you. Sign here. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, how do you know everybody <laughs> in this, in this right. precinct? And, uh, but there wasn't a good process to challenge that because you didn't have to have an ID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no way to dissect it afterwards. So we have a robust voter ID law. Uh, we also, <clears throat> over uh, a couple of legislative sessions, we first said that no non-paper ballot machines could be purchased. And uh, so we've got 92% of the state voted on paper um, this week or last week. And by the 2024 election, it will be 100% paper. We basically outlawed the DRE machines. So there's a paper record of every vote cast. Uh, we've outlawed Zuckerbox. We've got all kinds of controls on drop boxes. Um, we've done a partial purge of the voter rolls. We've got hundreds of thousands of dead people and felons and moved people uh, off the rolls. And, uh, <clears throat> but there's a lot more to do. As a candidate, you get a copy of the voter file so you can go do door-to-door canvassing. And all the candidates will say, oh, yeah, 10% of the time, it's got the wrong person living at this house or mm-hmm. two families or three families living at this house. And you know the other two sold years ago. And they're still there. Right. Are they still there? I don't know. But I'm <clears throat> focused on election legislation next year will be something to clean up those voter rolls and make some of that information more publicly available. I would like to see a list come out from every county clerk saying, here are the addresses in our county that have a registered voter at them and how many registered voters are at that address. No names, no birthdays. But you can look up your own address and go, huh, six people registered. It's just me and my wife. How can that be? Right. And within counties, maybe citizens can take a look, ask for some more information. And I would like to have the Secretary of State uh, have to report to the legislature every quarter on how they're doing cleaning up the voter rolls. Because it appears that there are a lot more efforts nationwide to register people who aren't registered, don't want to vote probably shouldn't vote. Right. And, uh, you know, I like yeah. that, that uh, a bill out of Arizona, I always talk about that failed. It was, it was basically before the election, you announce every registered voter in that precinct. And then after the election, you announce uh, every voter that voted in that precinct. And that helps you keep track publicly of where these people are at and who these people are that are voting. Yeah. I've had some discussion about that and uh, talked to Rand Paul and his folks about that some, and, and they have a lot of concerns about privacy because there are people you know, depending on the government that we get in a few years, they would take retribution on people for voting or not voting. You know, and if they knew they'd been to somebody's house and they said, oh, yes, I'll vote for you, then they don't or don't vote at all. Um, there could be consequences for that. So, yeah, I think uh, there's some privacy concerns. And I, I think there's enough privacy concerns in Kentucky that we probably wouldn't want to put names out there. But at the very minimum, give a a year advance notice of here's the addresses, here's how many people are registered there. Go take a look. Let citizen groups look, let the county clerk look, you know, publish, publish that information and do kind of what they did in Arizona with some of the, uh, you know, canvassing to say, are there really four families living here? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I like that, that Wisconsin and that Iowa law, they both have it where a private citizen has the ability to go in and challenge voter registrations and you don't have to file a lawsuit. There's like a day that you go in front right. of the clerk and the clerk hears these names and here's this evidence and it's supposed to take action if people are registered there that shouldn't be. Yeah. But unfortunately, we, we've gotten into an ugly era here in Kentucky that started in 2019 where 
public officials or even individuals can get doxxed if they serve on a board or something like that and have their personal phone number and address released to the public. So all of a sudden they look out and there's a you know angry bunch of protesters on their lawn right. illegally. By the way, right? They came and camped out on our attorney general's uh, lawn. Yeah, you know, illegally trying to intimidate a law enforcement officer, uh, and, you know, with, with pending pending litigation in front of him. And uh, it's a <clears throat> it's an ugly climate. So you have to draw a balance between we want to clean up the roles and we need to preserve people's privacy. Yeah, because because of retribution. Yes, yeah, so it does seem like societal decay is is setting in in some places, and it's hard. Right. It's like we need Christian uh, revival. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me. You mentioned. Um, Voter ID laws. Um, I, you know, I, I know that in, in Virginia last year, I was in Senate and Privileges, uh, the Senate Committee, which is Privileges and Elections, that deals with elections, and they had a bill uh, for photo ID in person. But if you didn't have it, you could just sign a paper, piece of paper saying, "If I, I am who I say I am, I promise." And then um, on mail-in ballots, there was no absentee, there was no photo ID requirement. You know, that's what we're seeing with a lot of these photo ID bills. What, you, what do you guys have in, in in Kentucky? It's a little tighter here. Um, you can, if you don't have a government-issued photo ID, you can sign an affidavit under penalties of perjury and uh, with another form of ID, maybe one without a photo mm-hmm. or from another source. Um, <clears throat> and that document could put you in jail if you are found to have perjured. So the incidence of people trying to vote without an ID is very, very low. I mean, most of the places I go are people come with their driver's license out and say, here you go. Right. So it's supposed to it's supposed to create a pain in the butt and be a little bit difficult if you don't have an ID. But that comes down to having enough election workers right uh to challenge the process because in 2020 at 5 30 in the morning we were getting our training to open the polls at six and i said something about oh you know what about voter id where are these forms for the affidavit and the election person from the county clerk's office said oh we're not going to mess with that today and i said whoa 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 <laughs> not going to mess with it today that's state law and they you know everybody else was like why doesn't this guy just shut up it's you know 5 30 in the right. morning and even though the coffee the voters are coming right is that the mood in a lot of those polls is not about let's do everything we can to ensure voter integrity. It's about let's get through the day without angry voters. Right. <laughs> right. The lines are too long. Yeah. And, and honestly, by, you know, about four thirty or five o'clock, your eyes are getting blurry. That starts becoming your goal. You know, I just want to finish this day out so we can close the polls. You're exhausted. And, um, and we've got to help and support those people, but we've got to have more people at the polls that have a passion for voter integrity and not just saying, Oh, nice to see you here, sir. Here's your ballot. Oh, no ID, no problem. You know, we'll get this form later. You know. Yeah, and I agree with that. I like customer service, but you know, if you're soft and lenient on that, you will get people voting who it's illegal for them to vote. It feels like in so many areas of life, public life, uh, conservatives have have decided that you know they want to focus on their church and their family and their their business, and they're going to let everybody else handle it and just let it go on autopilot. And we're seeing everything go off the cliff now. And I think more people are waking up and saying, "Wait a second, this is a government by the people for the people, but by the people." So it's not just for us. We have to be in charge of it. We have to make sure it's staying on the on the tracks. Yes. Well, the progressives started a movement under Woodrow Wilson where they uh, said that the government really needs to be run by experts. Mm. And there's three qualifications for people to be in the government. Number one, they had to be an expert in their field. <laughs> Number two, they had to be beyond reach of the political system. They couldn't get fired, couldn't get unelected. And, and number three, they had to be progressives. So as long as they met those three qualifications, they could come into the halls of government and run things. Right. And quietly through the administration of Wilson and then Roosevelt and then uh, you know, through the Kennedy and Johnson administration, 
people with those progressive thoughts came into our government, took over the halls of government. And frankly, after World War II, people were just tired. They wanted to go have babies and earn a living and get a new house. And they said, leave it to the experts. They got it. They're trusted. We can trust the news. We can trust the newspaper. The institutions are going to take care of us. And those people got in office or got, got into these permanent government positions that were experts that were beyond the political process right. and were progressives. And now we wake up and realize, oh, they're taking us somewhere we don't want to go and we can't right. get rid of them. Right. Trust, trust the experts. Elected, yeah, trust the experts. <laughs> and we've even had some of our own elected officials here take an attitude of, how dare you question me? We're the experts. Yeah. You need to trust us. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm explicitly not going to trust you. You need to prove to me what you're saying. Yeah, you know, if you're in the old west playing cards, and you put your cards down and have a full house, and the other guy goes, "Oh, I beat you," and reaches for the pot, right? Without showing his cards, there's a problem, right? <laughs> and we've got officials who are saying things. No, I'm not going to show you my cards. You just need to trust me, I'm right? Wrong. And that's that's just so wrong, so anti-American. And uh, we have to get to the point that we can ask questions. I mean, a- ask them politely, ask them respectfully, but insistently, right? And public officials need to answer. They don't need to say trust me. They need to say. You know, I hope I can prove this to you. Right. Here's the data. Here's the video. You know, we had a, a local school board candidate last year, and, and she said, I want to get on school board, and we're going to do some great things, and, I, and I'm a conservative. And I said, you know, what is the pipeline for finding a superintendent? Because we've had a run of bad superintendents, but it's hard because, you know, conservatives aren't people that are on the fast track to become superintendents, right? They're, that's not that's not what they do. And the, this lady surprised me because she had no answer, and she'd been in education for 30 years, and she was just going to go to the same pipeline that they always go to, where they get liberal-minded left wingers uh, to come in and run our school systems. And it's like we have to be thinking ahead and not just hiring the experts, as you said, right? Well, they've actually in the educational cabal they've created a system, at least in Kentucky, where you have a a pension system where your high three or uh, high five uh, compensation years determine the pension for the rest of your life. So you might be a rank and file teacher for 20 years, be a principal for four or five. And if you can be a superintendent and make $150,000 or $180,000 a year, you can retire at 50 and get compensated at six figures for the rest of your life. So there's a huge financial incentive to rise through the ranks from teacher to principal to to superintendent. We got a lot of superintendents in Kentucky and some small counties and they make some of them a quarter million dollars a year. Right. Now, and, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. And it, it's, it, it's a perverse financial incentive. And because of those requirements, you get only the people who are coming from the educational establishment. Nobody right. retires exactly. from IBM. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. Um, so, all right, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier with, um, you, you mentioned machines. And this is something yes. where everywhere I go, I sent out an email last week on the election, and I had a lot of questions about the midterm elections. It's, it seems like the numbers just don't add up. There's so many anomalies, and, and I just keep coming back to this question, was there massive um, ballot harvesting going on in some of these states? But somebody emailed me and said, what about the machines? And this is something I hear all the time. What about the machines? What are you doing about the machines? And I don't always know what the right answer is on machines. You know, what, what approach have you guys taken in Kentucky? I know that you basically – I think earlier you are talking about the ballot marketing devices where somebody comes in and they use like a stylus or to vote on the, the machine and it prints you off a little receipt and with a barcode instead of giving you a paper ballot. You guys have gotten rid of those and gotten back to paper ballots. Well, we actually have those ballot marking devices specifically for ADA access. Okay. Anybody can vote on it if they want. But it does produce a full-size paper ballot just like the other machines. It then goes to a separate machine gets run through the scanner to count. Okay. So it's for the disabled. So but they can they, verify it themselves. 
Yeah, it's called you know voter verified right. paper. They can see it, okay. and if you want to do a recount, you can run it through the scanner. So it's human readable. Okay, it's on full size ballot paper. So again, by twenty four, everyone in Kentucky will be voting on paper. You know, with a record, it can be uh, claimed under open records request. Uh, we've got automatic recount provisions. We've made it a felony to plug a scanner into the internet. Uh, so the only thing, only machines we have, you know, there's an iPad that you check in with to see who you are. Have you voted yet? Do you have an absentee ballot? And mm-hmm. what precinct are you in so we can issue you a ballot? You're issued your ballot, and there's a cutoff point there. You then take this ballot over, mark it, and you put it in a scanner that's not connected to the Internet, and it's a felony to connect it to the Internet. And um, and that records your votes, and at the end of the day, tabulates that on a piece of, uh, you know, adding machine tape, basically gets signed by the election officer. Right. So that, in Kentucky, our votes are counted on election night. So... Um, Precinct is at most about 1,500 people, so you'll get that adding machine tape with the votes added on it, maybe two or three feet long, and sign at the bottom by the election officials and taped to the door. It's taped to the door of the polling place. So that's can be subpoenaed as evidence. It's not changing. You can't you can't alter that. And weeks or months later, you can go back and take the sealed pile of ballots, eyeball count them, and compare them to that register tape. I actually participated in that in yeah, the courtroom yeah. setting uh, this year so. Um, and it's tedious. So right. it's tedious <laughs> it is, yeah. Do yeah. you have any rough idea of what kind of – how many absentee ballots are going out in Kentucky? Is that going to be a minority of ballots? Are they going to – and when they are available, are they early ballots? Are they going through the mail or drop boxes? Yeah, we've, we've – <clears throat> part of the election reform wasn't necessarily wild about this, but they did add, add three days of early voting, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And it's called no excuse, no excuse absentee voting. Um, to get a paper ballot in the mail, you know, what you call a mail-in ballot, you have to have an excuse. You have to be, uh, you know, disabled, unable to travel, you know, out of the country, military, something like that. And you have to uh, have witnesses sign that and have a uh, photo ID. You have to apply for the ballot, get it mm-hmm. personally sent back to you in the mail, and then return it, and it's tracked electronically. So it's a very small percentage of people voting with mail ballots. So there is no wholesale mailing of ballots in Kentucky. You have to apply for it individually and get one mailed back to you. And that's tracked. With the early voting this year, we got about 20% of the population voted early on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, which about equal numbers of Democrats and mm-hmm. Republicans. And they say it's a huge boost because some people can't get off on Tuesday between six right. and six. You know, they're working, they're out of town. So uh, <clears throat> pretty popular option, but lines were long. And uh, we had about 20% of the state vote like that. But it wasn't Dropbox, it wasn't mail-in, it was walk-in, in-person, show your ID, get your ballot, fill it out, stick it in the scanner. And then 80% voted on in-person, on paper, on election day. And we had all of our votes counted by, you know, before we went to bed. You know, John, um, I have noticed that, this we did this in Virginia, and I've noticed it, I noticed it in looking at the data in Georgia and Florida from this last election a week ago. Um, mm-hmm. When states, I'm not, I think it would be preferable if we all voted on election day in person, but being, seeing the world as it is, uh, to me, a preferred method of voting over these mass absentee mail-in ballots that are just rife with fraud is uh, allowing people to come in and vote early in person, show their photo ID, and then put their own ballot into the tabulator. And, and that's something I think is happening in Georgia and in, in Florida and Virginia right now. Yeah, that was the theory here that in 2020, we had massive numbers of people doing the uh, mail-in mm-hmm. absentee ballots. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't I can't point to any fraud there, but I can say if I was a fraudster, that would have right. been easy to perpetrate yeah. fraud in the 2020. 20- Nobody was looking. Nobody cared. They're afraid of right. COVID. You know, let's just get this over. 
Well, we had put a huge dent in that to, to the point that we have a tiny percentage of people voting on a mail-in mm-hmm. ballot. And even that is tightly controlled, but most of the people who are voting earlier are voting in in person with an ID on paper and put it in the scanner themselves. So there's no no chain of custody issue. Yeah. So, so you know, post office is involved. Uh, you can't lose it, you know. Right. You're right there. You so, know, we compare and contrast. Uh, I feel like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, we have a hotline at the Attorney General's office and the Secretary of State's office for voter irregularity complaints, and I'm really not aware of anything significant. You know, you know in, in, in this- I want to compare and contrast this to like Michigan, where you know I think Detroit had something like 20 early satellite voting centers where people from all 400 precincts could come in on any day in the weeks leading up to the election. And if you were from any of those 400 precincts, they had a ballot on hand for you to vote. They just had to go back to the file cabinet and grab it. And they, and they right. didn't just um, let you vote your ballot and then put it in the tabulator. They gave you an absentee mail-in ballot and you walked away with it. Right, and then and you walked away with it and took it home, and then you did whatever it is that you did with it. Yeah, it's crazy. Our, our stuff does not ever leave the facility unless it's that serial number controlled mail-in ballot to you know to shut-ins. And we actually uh, had something this year we had not had before, which we got about six hundred precincts in my county, which are you know make three, four hundred mm-hmm. different ballot faces, and in twenty twenty, everybody could vote at the super voting center, and you had to have you know, two or 300 ballot faces out there and you're running around trying to get them. People got given the wrong ballot. Ended up voting and said, oh, this wasn't even, this." my small city election wasn't on here. I didn't notice. So this year they've gone to a uh, a lot of places. They print your ballot Mm -hmm. on demand. You show your driver's license, they scan it and say, oh, you're in precinct V105. And they print you the V105 ballot. So people aren't voting on their own ballot. And they're, they're printing that on special paper with a serialized tab on it. You know, that gets right. torn off, so you, you can account for every single piece of paper that went through there. So I actually like that better than the piles of ballots because there's a lot less opportunity for yeah, absolutely for screw-ups. Now, it does make your service time about, oh, 60, 75 seconds mm-hmm. for somebody to go up there, show their ID, find the precinct, print the ballot, get the ballot. And you could run out of ink and there are those things. But I think it's better than having 300 file cabinets right. back there. And all, and all the waste of ballots. I, I don't like extra ballots being left over because those could come to right, right, right. Yeah, there, there's absolutely no reconciliation for unused ballots. I, I would say absolutely. What we're finding is that in many of these big cities, there's not a reconciliation process that's made public about what's happening to those unused yeah. ballots, spoiled ballots, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so Louisville's our big city, but it's still less than a million people here in the county. And uh, so like I say, we somehow, by a miracle, managed to get all of our ballots counted before we go to right. bed every night. And and that's because 80% of the votes are cast on election day at a precinct with 1,500 or less people and the printout signed and on the door before yeah, they go so, home. So I noticed an interesting trend as I was looking at the data after this, this midterms last week. And it seems to me like three things if – th- if your state had three things in their election laws, it went red. And if it, had, if it didn't have these three things, it seemed to go blue. Three things were does your state have a permanent absentee voter list where people you – know, they're, they're put on the list to be sent an absentee ballot and then they're sent one forevermore. Uh, number two, do they have same day registration? And number three, did they have, you know, uh, did they send out or receive about a million ballots at least for every 10 million people? And if and if if you had the permanent absentee list, if you sent out that many absentee ballots, if you had same day registration, those states all went blue. But states like North Carolina and Georgia and Florida that did not have those things, they went red, right? In Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, you know, Pennsylvania, those states 
had at least two or three of those things and they all went blue. And I think it's really telling about where our electoral system is at. Yeah, I agree with you. And Kentucky has none of those things. Um, we, we don't have same-day registration. We don't have uh, a permanent permanent absentee ballot. Uh, you have to physically go onto a website and apply for your absentee ballot every time to get it mailed specifically to you, serialized control tracked on the Internet. And, uh, and you have to have a picture of your ID and witnesses sign it. So it's a pretty robust mail-in process. So as a result, it's kind of a pain, but I guess if you're you know confined to a bed that or overseas, that's the way to... It's the way to do it and do it honestly. But uh, the vast mm-hmm. majority of people, 80% of people voting on election day, 20% are voting early. And of those 20% voting early, the vast majority of them are in person, on paper, with an ID, feeding it into the scanner themselves. So, uh, you know, very little drop box action, uh, you know, low single digits percentage-wise of people uh, voting on a, on a drop box. So, John, and kind of in closing, I want to know what you foresee the legislature taking up in regards to election bills or what you think they should take up. I know that you already mentioned a bill where we would kind of announce how many vote registered voters are at a right. certain household. What else are you seeing on the horizon for Kentucky? Well, we've had uh, three bills with significant changes in them to plug every hole that we identified in 2019 and 2020. So so this time I, w- I would like to codify a process to permanently check the tech and have the attorney general as an independent of the uh, secretary of state go out to every county randomly pick one precinct and one race and eyeball count that our stats show that you can eyeball count about you know 300 ballots an hour or so you know in one race so that's not a huge effort we got 120 counties but that lets people know no matter how large or small your race is there's a random sampling to make sure that this scanner is matching the hard copy ballot so you better mm-hmm. not cheat because you got a right. fairly statistical chance of getting caught that's right. not a total recount but it's it's doable and it's it's a uh, it's kind of like the way they used to random sample ammunition. You know, you can't shoot every cartridge in a box to make sure it shoots. Right. It. But if you find one dud, there's a serious problem. And you right. Harder. So, right. Uh, my, from my background in engineering, I kind of draw on that example for statistical sampling. So, yeah. so one, one race in one precinct in every single county in the state would be our follow-up audit done by the attorney general's office. Okay. Uh, and that gets a whole separate group of people in there. It's not the county clerk. There's not, you know, the local interest. It's a, it's a separate government entity, you know, yeah. different branches of government uh, matching each other. And uh, then the other one is, like I said, has to do with voter roll cleanup. I'm not a big yes. fan of the ERIC system, which we're a member right. of. Uh, I think, this is my personal theory, if I were a cheater and I lived in a big city, I would go try to get people that weren't legally eligible to vote and somehow get a ballot mm-hmm. in their hands and get it turned in. Right. Because uh, it's easily done. Yeah, Absolutely. And uh, so that's what I'd like to prevent in Kentucky. I think we're uh, we're well down that road. You know, we we had our suspicions about a year earlier than the rest of the country, so we got started fixing it right here before the rest of the country. Yeah, did. that's so true. That's so true. And, well, John, thanks for being on today. Thanks for talking through some of these issues. We appreciate your leadership and congratulations on the big win on Tuesday. And Thank I look forward much. to seeing you in the legislature. Great. Thank you very much, Tim. Great talking to you.